to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, um, I, I, um, I got married uh, in November and uh, finally got my wedding pictures. Well, actually, I got my wedding pictures a long, long time ago and I finally put it up on Facebook. But I know some of y'all were there, some of y'all weren't there, so I thought I'd share a uh, couple of pictures, and it's going to segue into a point that I want to make. Because <laughs> I'm a preacher. I'm a preacher. Do you know what a segue is? Segue is the Paul Blackmore called thing. Okay. Well, I, I want to show you a picture of my beautiful wife. Boom. Look at that. Look at that. So chill, so pretty. Right, very pretty, right? Well, you know, this is the, the remark I get you know, from most people who attend my wedding. They're like... Amy is just smiling and just beaming the whole time. You know, the whole time she just didn't keep her mouth shut, you know. Just like, smiling the whole time. And then by the time she got back to the hotel room, like, oh, her cheeks were all cramped up. And she was just smiling the whole time, you know, and she was walking down and she was smiling. And we were, we were just discussing uh, as a couple. We were like, she was like, hey, you know, when I march on the aisle, do you think you will cry? Then she was like, I think I will cry. I think I will cry very bad. Then she, we were just discussing like, hey, if I cry, then you don't cry what would that look like, and, and all sorts of things. And in the end, she didn't cry. She was just smiling, really happy. She was literally skipping as she walked down the aisle. Well, she didn't really walk. She almost floated down the, the aisle. You know, and well, uh, I'd like to show you a picture of me. Uh, don't put it up yet. No, um. <laughs> you know, some people have uh, taken a picture and circulated it around the church, and there are talks of it turning into a meme. So, by my pastoral authority, <laughs> I, I will meme myself. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, it's like I'll just shoot myself in the own foot before anyone shoot me. Well, I, I want to show you the picture, and uh, this, is, uh, this is how I looked as, uh, as Amy walked down the aisle. Uh, put out the picture. Uh, this is my face. And some right, Chris. <laughs> Let me explain to you what's happening, huh? Okay, so you have Axel. He's trying to hand me a tissue because, you know, I look like this is the face of someone who doesn't want to get married. And, and so, uh, look at Pasadeno. That's, that's an expression. And, uh, but yeah, I was, I was crying. My, and my brother, he was concerned. <laughs> I was like, does Andre really want to get married? Why is he bawling? Why is he crying? And so, yeah, I know it's a really, really odd series of pictures, you know, because when, you know, the photographer sent it and it's like Amy beaming and then Andre just heaving. And uh, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> okay, no memes. Okay, I, I, I want to make a point, you know, and, and the point is this, you know. Um, It's often what church looks like sometimes, yeah? You know, you have people laughing, you have people crying, and, you know, we are, we are both... Okay, let's, let's get rid of the picture. <laughs> You're distracting me. Pass Andre. Move. <laughs> wow. <laughs> S- 
some kind of rebellion here. <laughs> okay, track with me. Both of us were experiencing the same thing, yes? But both of us had different expressions of it, yeah? Yes? You know, and that's really what church is sometimes. You know? We are all experiencing the same thing collectively as a body of people. You know? We're experiencing the presence of God. We are hearing from the Word of God. But we all have different uh, expressions of our response to what we are all collectively experiencing at the same time. Does that make sense? You know, and I think in many ways, our salvation, our Christian walk, is likened to a marriage. And I want to I elaborate on this point further. It is paramount for us as Christians to look at our salvation as a marriage as opposed to a legal transaction. Paramount. Super duper important. When we got married, okay, we did the legal thing. Okay? We said our own vows and then we did the, 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 the legit vows and then we, we signed and then we got married. Yes. In that vows, okay, we covered a whole bunch of different things. You know, when you're sick, when you're you know, ugly, when you're broke, you know, I will, I will still be with you. And in our own personal vows uh, that we said to one another, there were a lot of things that we promised one another. Yes, we can agree on that. I said my vows, I did the legal thing, and then I got married. Makes sense. But how many of you know that the quality of my marriage is not so much determined by the vows I made as opposed to my intentionality or my constant effort to adhere to the vows that I made? Is that too many words? Let me make it simple. The quality of my marriage is not so much determined by the words that I said on my wedding day, but is determined by a life devoted, a life with intention to live those words that I promised. Does that make sense? You can agree on that. Likewise, salvation is not a legal transaction. When you think of it as a legal transaction, salvation to you looks like I prayed a prayer X amount of years ago and then I'm done. Likewise, no, as, as it were to marriage, the quality of your salvation, the quality of your Christian walk is not so much determined by the prayer you prayed X amount of years ago, but it's determined by your effort, your intentionality to live up to that prayer that which you prayed. Am I making sense? Raise your hands, am I making sense? Yes? We pray in that prayer. I acknowledge you, Jesus, as my Lord and as my Savior. Okay, we prayed that prayer. That's how we got saved. But how many of you know that salvation is not just a one-off experience? It's an experience that we are continually experiencing even to today. The Bible says that we are continually being saved. Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so picture this, okay? We said this prayer. Jesus, you are my Lord. And if the quality of my life is then determined by the prayer that I pray, or my adherence to the prayer that I pray, then a life uh, of good quality, a good quality Christian life ought to look like a life that is intentional, that a life that is devoted to revealing more of Jesus in my life as Lord. That means I make a conscientious effort to submit more and more of my life to the Lord to really, really, really make Him Lord of my life. Am I making sense? 
Can we agree on this, this point? Yeah, because if you don't agree, then very hard to move on. Huh? Can we agree on this point? Yes? We prayed the sinner's prayer, but we all can agree that not everything changed in a moment, right? You're still struggling with the same things. There are still some things that you refuse to give up. It's still a work in progress, right? But you said yes. You said, I am committed. And then the rest of your Christian life is about walking out that commitment that you made. Am I making sense? You're doing good. So this is what living a life of response to God's lordship look like, looks like. It looks like a lifestyle of absolute trust. Absolute trust. I trust in you as Lord. I make you Lord of my life. I want to read a, a passage of scripture and I'm going to segue into the main meat of my message. Let's look at Psalms 107. It says this, Let them praise the Lord for His great love and for the wonderful things He has done for them. For He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. I'll read that again. Let them praise the Lord for His great love and for the wonderful things He has done for them. For He satisfies the thirsty and He fills the hungry with good things. If you were to look at um, leadership, uh, authority, and being a person in rule in the context of the Bible, a person that is in rule, a person that has authority, is endowed with two primary purposes. One purpose of that authority is to protect the people that is submitted under that person's authority. The second purpose for that authority is to empower, to better the lives of the people that are submitted to that authority. And so, if you were a lord in that day, you had two jobs. Your job was to protect your people. And not only that, your job was to better their lives, to empower them. Am I making sense? Okay? And this, right, is almost like a promise. Okay? Come under my lordship. Come under the lordship of Jesus. And the psalm says this, that he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Our lordship, does, our submission to his lordship doesn't only involve that act of submission, but there's also an added empowerment and betterment when you come under his lordship. Think of it in, in, the, in the context of nations. When you become a citizen of a certain nation, you are submitted under a certain government. And when you're submitted under that government, under that rulership, okay, it comes with the laws, it comes with the statute, it comes with certain behaviours that uh, the government enforces the people to live by and to act out. Agree on that, yes? But there also comes benefits. There also comes empowerment. There also comes betterment. So it's, it's the same in the kingdom of God. When you are submitted to His Lordship, okay, that process or that act doesn't only end in the act of submission. It results in empowerment and embattlement. And what the Lord is saying to us, I believe, today, is that when you make Him your Lord, He will satisfy you. When you make Him your Lord, He will satisfy your thirst. He will fill you with good things. Most of us approach Lordship as like a really, um, 
it has such a negative connotation. Oh, it, does it mean I have to die to myself? Does it mean I don't, I, it's so restrictive? It's not fun? It sounds terrible. But we have to approach lordship through that lens, through that perspective. That lordship doesn't mean, okay, you have less of yourself. Lordship means that you get empowered to become more than you ever could be on your own. Making sense? And this is what I want to talk about today. You know, I, I listed down in my first message on, on the series uh, that there are four primary needs of the soul. Do you remember? The first need is a need for significance. And there's a need for satisfaction, a need for solace, and a need for security. I hope to be able to cover all four uh, needs of the soul that I believe are not exclusive to certain in- individuals, but all of us collectively, all of us as people, have those needs. Okay, and today I want to talk about our need for satisfaction, our soul's need for satisfaction. Are you following me? Satisfaction is often defined this way as fulfillment, pleasure, contentment, being at rest, satisfied. How many of you have seen this verse before? Psalms 27 verse 4. It says this, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's crazy. You know, we, we pray that prayer sometimes, you know, in, in our own devotion, in prayer meetings. One thing have I desired that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. No, David, why you spoil market? That's, that's so crazy, right? Doesn't that provoke you? You know, let, 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 me, let me throw another verse out. Psalms 42, verse 2, it says this. David says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That word thirst is, is not just, you know, a, a really passive like, oh, I'm thirsty, you know, maybe I get a cup of water in two hours. No, it's, it's a desperate longing. It's a desperate cry. I will not survive. I cannot live another moment if I don't have you, God. My soul thirsts for the living God. How many of us can say we are at a place where we are possessed with such a divine hunger, with such a divine longing for God? How many of us can say that we are at a place where our one thing, our one desire, our one pursuit is to be in God's house? crazy, right? And some of us approach it, you know, almost passively, like, you know, hey, maybe one day, you know, uh, after X amount of years of being a Christian and certain amount of encounters, I'll come to a place where this is all I want. I'll come to a place where I'm satisfied by God. Right? But but I, I, I want us to almost take the Word of God, okay, and let it provoke you. Let it be a thorn to your side. Let it challenge you. Let it say to you that there is more that you can experience. Many times we lower, okay, we, we base almost our expectation of God on what we are currently experiencing as opposed to taking the word of God and lifting our expectation. We look at verses like this and we go, no, it's not possible. No one has ever done it. I never heard of anybody that's done it. And we go, no, it can't be done. Instead of letting the word speak for itself that there is a place in God, 
there's a place in our walk with God where we can come to, where we can attain to, where He is our soul satisfaction. Where the one thing, the one thing that provokes me, that motivates me in life, is Him. And my soul can be truly satisfied. My thirst is satisfied in Him. Okay. Not making sense. <laughs> Question we're all asking ourselves now, I hope. So why don't I live that way? Why, why am I not wired that way, if you will? I can easily go about my whole day not needing the Lord. You know, I, I can go, I can live life, you know, not, not even thinking about, about God until Sunday is up. It's like, oh, it's Sunday time. Probably should take up my Bible, dust off the dust for six days and come to church. You know, that verse, it says, my soul first for God, for the living God. You know, I want to suggest to you this. I want to suggest to you uh, the truth that we all have a first. All our souls are wired with a first. There is a longing in your hearts for God. And so, it isn't the question about whether you have an internal longing in you. The question of Yahweh is, what have you been using to satisfy that longing? You all have a first for God. You are wired that way. When you were created, you were created in glory. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You were created for that intimacy. You were created for communion with God. You all have that deep longing. Question of the hour is, what have you been using to mitigate that longing that is meant to be satisfied by the Lord? That makes sense. See, thirst is a good and healthy thing. It's not a dysfunction. It's a good and healthy thing. You know, um, medical professionals will, will tell you that if a body experiences so much trauma and uh, is near death, one of the things that the body will lose as, it, as the body deteriorates and dies is it will lose its sense of thirst. And so if I were to stretch that fact a bit further, thirst then is the proof of life. A sense of thirst then is the proof of life. I know you are alive spiritually by how much you thirst for God. I know you are alive spiritually by how much you long and pine for the things of God. That longing and pining is not a result of dysfunction. It's health. We read in Genesis that the soul was created in this way. God took and, and crafted man from the ground. He brought man up and he breathed into the nostrils of man. And then it said a living soul came to being. Right? When heaven met earth, a soul came to be. Right? We read in the Bible that the body may pass away, may rot, may deteriorate, but the soul would last for eternity, either in heaven and hell. Okay? The soul will last forever. So the soul itself is an eternal being, eternal entity. Agree with that? Yes? God, okay, created us from the dust of the ground, His living breath, okay, and so happened. An eternal being created an eternal thing. Okay? Here's where we run into problems. When we try to satisfy something that is eternal with temporal things. That's where we run into trouble. When we try to satisfy something that was created for eternity, by eternity, with temporal things. Are you agreeing with me? 
we try to satisfy our thirst with things that, you know, uh, are earthly, you know. Um, we try to satisfy that thirst for an eternal being with things that don't last, things that run out, things that will honestly never satisfy. See, satisfaction is this. Satisfaction is fullness, is fulfillment, is contentment. The satisfaction that God wants for you is not temporal, it's not fleeting. We think of satisfaction as a momentary thing, as a passing thing. But the kind of satisfaction that the kingdom promises you is a satisfaction that is a state of being. We think of satisfaction as passing, fleeting, momentary. But the satisfaction is your very state of being. My soul is satisfied. It's in a place of satisfaction, fulfillment, fullness. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, brother. <laughs> Are you all with me? Yeah. Now, I don't have this verse up, but in John 4, you know, we're familiar with the story where Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman. He says this to her, whoever drinks of this water, talking about earthly water, will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Will never thirst. See, I believe this, that dissatisfaction in life is the root of all kinds of sin. Why do people cheat on their spouse, abuse drugs and alcohol, mindlessly binge watch ridiculous amounts of television, guilty, scroll endlessly on Facebook and Twitter, steal or commit suicide? All of these things happen and more because people haven't found happiness and satisfaction in life. You're looking for love in all the wrong places. Satisfaction, belonging in places that, that honestly don't last, right? At the root of our dissatisfaction is a never-ending thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. We've been duped into thinking that a better job, more money, cooler friends, another spouse, or a new life is really what we need. And if we can't obtain any of these things, or when they leave us dissatisfied, we resort to drug abuse, sexual immorality, or senseless entertainment. All sin is a result of the attempt to find satisfaction in something or someone else other than Christ. Am I making sense? I don't know about you, but this is a tough pill for me to swallow, you know. Because my, the suggestion is almost like, I don't know what should satisfy me, right? Because, you know, if you ask me honestly, like, Andre, how do you get satisfied? I'm like, oh yeah, drink Coca-Cola, you know, watch Netflix, watch Friends, it's all on Netflix now, uh, you know, sit in my shorts at, at home, you know, and not go out for a whole day, I'm like, I'm satisfied. Right? But the Creator God is saying that, hey, true satisfaction is found in me, in my ways. And so, let me tie back that Lordship element. Lordship is saying, I trust you I give you supreme authority. I align my practices, my beliefs to the way you think and act. Because I know you are higher, greater, and you know better than I do. That's scary. That's absolute trust. Right? That's absolute trust. And oftentimes, you know, uh, wisdom masquerades itself as a lack of trust. Right? 
sorry, the other way, a lack of trust often masquerades itself as wisdom or knowledge or I know better. You know, I, I've been really challenged as, as a, a married man, you know, because um, one of the things we have to do uh, at home is buy IKEA stuff. And uh, you have to do it as part of PMC. No. <laughs> Fix the IKEA furniture as a couple. If you don't quarrel, you pass. <laughs> I dare you. <laughs> no, but okay. So you, you, you build IKEA stuff, right? And, and you know, I, one of the things I, I come to realize more and more is how much of a typical dude I am. I'm such a dude. And so, you know, when I look at the IKEA stuff, you know, first thing in my mind was, it's not the instructions. I'm like, toss the instructions. I'm like, let me look at the tools. Let me look at how to fix this. I was like, hmm, it probably makes sense for this to go here, you know. And, you know, there are a couple of furniture where I'm like, hey, why is it not fitting right? You know, I'm, and I'm like, where's the hammer? You know, let me knock it into place and let me force it, force it in, you know. <laughs> how many of you do that? Just Andre? Yeah, just Andre. Okay. No, and, and, and I think of it like that, right? See, the, the IKEA people probably knows how to fix the furniture better than I do, yes? They created it, they designed it, and so they ought to know how to put it together, yes? And not only that, they know how that item functions and how it ought to function, okay? How it should function optimally, yes? Like, I have a bedside table and... Uh, Amy doesn't know yet, so this is re- re- revelation to her, but the whole side panel is out already and the thing is not closing right and I have to shove it in all the time because I fixed it wrong. Okay? I never learned instruction. <laughs> okay? And so the whole side panel is off and the drawer just doesn't shut right. Okay? So it, it's working, but it's not working as it should. Are you making sense? You feel me? You feel me? Yes. Can we all agree that God created us? Yeah, if you have a problem with that, you know, then maybe we meet at the boardroom and we can <laughs> chat it out, I guess. But we can all agree, yes, that God created us, yes. Okay, He created us. The Bible says that He formed us. And, and not only that, the word seems to suggest fashion. He fashioned us. He crafted us. It's not a cookie cutter thing. It's not a mass production thing. But He fashioned you one by one. Intricate detail. He created us. Is it then safe to assume that he would know how you ought to function? He would know how you are put together. He would know what is best for you. We can agree. But most of us struggle with that. We struggle with that. We read the Bible and we go, nah. That doesn't feel right. I don't resonate. Let me look it in the Hebrew and try and make it, try and twist it somewhere else. We all do that. Maybe not the Hebrew, but just me. We all do that. Yes. It's time for us to, to, to come to a greater alignment with that truth that He is Lord. And that alignment looks like absolute trust. It looks like you know better. It looks like I may feel a certain way, but the Word tells me this. And so one of us has to shift Who is it going to be? There's this saying that, that uh, you know, it's a man named Botet and says this, that you know, uh, God created man in his image and for thousands of years, man has been trying to return the favor.
It's true, right? You know, you have a God the size of our comfort, our 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 convenience. But this faith, this walk with Christ, is not one of comfort or convenience. I can tell you that. I can assure you that. But at the end of it, it's this fullness, this joy, this satisfaction that nothing in this world can give you. And your soul has a need for that satisfaction. Not just any kind of satisfaction, but for that eternal, lasting satisfaction. Make sense? I love you. That make sense? Okay. Psalms 131. In the Passion Translation. It says, Lord, my heart is meek before you. I don't consider myself better than others. I am content to not pursue matters that are over my head, such as your complex mysteries and wonders that I'm not yet ready to understand. I'm humble and quieted in your presence. Next slide. Like a contented child who rests on its mother's lap, I'm your resting child, and my soul is content in you. O people of God, your time has come to quietly trust waiting upon the Lord now and forever. My soul is content in you. Absolute trust in the Lord. You're making sense. And so, this is what we need to do. Not just today, but for the rest of life. It will be a constant battle. You will find yourself in constant uh, moments where you're almost like a fork in the road, where my feelings or popular opinion or the way I've always done things seems to suggest this way. But then God, in His Word, in His voice towards you, in wise counsel, seems to suggest a different thing. And you have to stand in that fork and have to make a decision. Do I choose to align with feelings or do I choose to trust? Do I choose to walk? Do I choose to acknowledge that He, he is Lord and live by faith? I would suggest to you that living by faith and not by sight looks like that more often than, not, than when you face circumstances or, and stuff like that. It looks like that active decision, that intentionality to, I'm not going to be motivated by feeling, I'm not going to be motivated by what I see, but I'm going to be motivated by what he has said through his word. Because I, I know it's best for me. I'm making sense. I'll talk about it before, but you know, the misperception or misconception when it comes to uh, the goodness of God in our life. We think of the goodness of God as there is this, okay, and God is gooder than that. We think of it comparatively, right? God is better, gooder than this, okay? But that scale, okay, is a man-made conception, okay? And so when something does not look better than what is in front of me, then there is not God. But good is His nature. His absolute nature. Which means to say that all that He does is good. All that He does is good. And so you'll find yourself again, fork in the road, okay? I've always known good as this. But God seems to be doing this. That does not look as good as this. 
and you can choose okay, to be offended with God that He did not perform up to your expectations or realign your perception of what good is to what He is doing. That's why Romans 12.2 says, be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind that you may prove what is the good, perfect, and acceptable will of the Father. It's about realigning. Somebody's got to give. Somebody's got to shift. And it's ought to be you and me. Just a suggestion. Right. I've always been satisfied this way. These things are okay. But you're saying something else. Somebody's got to give. It's about realigning and renewing your appetite. You always crave for what you've cultivated an appetite for. So who's going to give? Who's going to shift? Amen. So this is my sermon title for today. <laughs> you know my style. It comes later. Building up to it. My sermon title is Soul Prosperity. I call this the better part. The better part. You know, we, we know in Luke 10, the story of Mary Martha and, you know, Jesus came, comes to the house. Martha goes to the, Martha. Martha goes to the kitchen. Not police. Uh. Martha goes to the kitchen and starts making sandwiches. I'm paraphrasing. And then Mary, you know, sits at the feet of Jesus. And, and then Martha comes out all offended. Like, Mary, you know, help me. Jesus, look at Mary. Mary, help me. You know, what am I going to do? And, and then Jesus is like, oh, but Mary has chosen the better part. You know, we often look at the scripture and be like, oh, yeah. Totally makes sense, man. I would do, I've done what Mary has done. I would sit on the floor. No, man, we are all Singaporeans. We are probably going to make sandwiches and oh, I need to host, I need to host, I need to host. Okay, just me? Okay. <laughs> I think it makes sense. You know, if Jesus comes to your house, you'll be like, oh, I need to, I need to host, I need to like, you know, serve him some food. It, it makes sense, right? It makes sense logically, almost practically, yes? Guests come to your house, you want to serve. Okay, but Mary did the almost impractical thing, the almost illogical thing. And then Jesus said to her that you've chosen the better part. The goal of our lives is to choose the better part. Not just to do what is logical, what is popular, what comes naturally, but to choose the better part. And not just that, align our desires, our hunger to crave for that which is better. Making sense? Okay. We, we need to book it. Okay? Prepare your ears. Huh? Lots of information coming your way. Ready? Go. Okay. Philippians 4. Love this verse. Okay? Paul. Okay? Great man. Okay, we all know at the end of this verse, we have the crescendo. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things. To strengthens me. You know, we put it on our gym gear. You know, uh, sports athletes. Like, I can do all things. You know? But I want you to read Okay, that verse in its right context. Follow me. Philippians 4. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. Oh, Paul is got a bit of attitude. Oh, yeah, no, no. Okay, never mind. No time. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Next slide. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned 
the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in one, I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. What is that which Paul is able to do through Christ that strengthens him? He's able to be content in every season. He's able to be satisfied. He's able to be full. He's able to be fulfilled in need and in plenty. Whether things are going for him, whether things are not going for him, whether people give to him, whether people don't give to him, whether people ignore him, whether people care about him, he's able to be content. Watch this. I have learned to be content. Paul is suggesting this to you and me. That satisfaction, contentness is not a disposition that you're just born with or a result of favorable circumstances. But it's a skill set that you acquire. (laughs) No time. Podcast. (laughs) It can be acquired. You can't train yourself to be satisfied in plenty or in want. Many times we allow, you know, I've talked about this often, we allow these things to define what goes on internally. But the life that Christ wants for you and me is that we are not shaken by the storms that goes around us, but we have perfect peace. No matter what happens around us. I am satisfied. What does it as well in my soul look like? It looks like, hey, maybe I can, you know, do certain things to make you feel better. And I go, I'm good. I'm well. That is great. And that's what Paul is essentially saying, you know. Hey, you know, you want to give to me? Great. But I'm content. I love your gift. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, cuts. But I am content. Whether you give to me or whether you don't, I'm content. My contentness, my satisfaction is not determined or predicated by what you do. Oh, sorry, I'm yelling. That making sense to you. I want to talk about, I want to close with this, you know, and, and uh, I think this will be really crucial for some of us, you know. So we've talked about this, you know. He is Lord. He knows what ought to satisfy us, okay? Many of us, you know, we don't have that hunger and thirst for God, you know, because we've been satisfying ourselves with the wrong things, with inferior things, to be honest. So what then, you know, is the things that God has or wants for you to be satisfied with. You know, and I, I want to look at five things that I believe are sources of temporal satisfaction we often value over the better part that God intends for us. Or I'm going to phrase it in this way that we ought to value these things okay, over the inferior things. Okay? So I want to talk about five areas or five things that uh, we ought to value over the inferior things. Okay? Number one, I believe we ought to find satisfaction in the call of God over earthly success. In the call of God over earthly success. One of the great teachings that has uh, infiltrated a church in our day is that our work is our worship. You know, what we do in the marketplace, what we do in our jobs is like worship to God. Great. Because, you know, it erases the line of secular sacred. You know, it, it, it tells you that, hey, God can be involved in your work in your profession. Excellent. Love it. But there's a difference between 
incorporating God into your work and aligning your work to God's work. It may look the same, but the question is intent. It's intent. One, okay, seems to look at God as like a value add to what I'm really doing. Hey, I want to be successful in my job, and the Bible says so and so and so and so, so I need to put God into my work so I can be successful. God then is a means to an end. But the other has God as the end. The end of all days. All I do, all I seek after, all I put my hands to is for the glory of God. Very different. Which do we value? Do we value success over God? Or, or let me put it to you this way. Has success become a God to you? What if for the rest of your lives you will not be viewed as successful in the eyes of the world, but have done right in the eyes of God? Which takes precedence? Satisfaction in my success or satisfaction in, found, in the fact that I'm found pleasurable to God? That making sense? You know, when we got married, you know, uh, I have some friends that are, that are not in church, you know, and there's this popular saying that, that goes around uh, people who are not of the Christian persuasion when it comes to marriage. And it's, it's a sickening thing. It, they, they go, hey, you got to try it before you buy it. Sickening, right? Basically, it means that you have to sleep around. You have to try different people before you know what you want. That's, that's wrong because they view marriage as a purchase, as a transaction. It's not. It's covenant. So, you know, we, we saved ourselves for, for our marriage. And, you know, our marriage night was great. Challenging, but great. Andre, you got no time, you got no time. <laughs> move on, move on. Hear, hear me in this. Hear me in this. Now standing, okay, on the other side of the fence, granted, it took me a while to get to this side of the fence. The joy, the satisfaction I get from knowing that I did what was right is a joy that nothing on planet earth can give me. Nothing. Okay? I might not view, be viewed as the, the most logical, the most practical person to my friends, but I know I'm, I'm found right. And that joy far exceeds their opinions. Am I making sense? There's this verse, Ecclesiastes. I, I just want to reference this verse before I move on to the next point. Ecclesiastes, can we have that verse up? It says this, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. In some translations, labor. In some translations, work. For this is the gift of God. Can I tell you this? That God intends for you to find satisfaction in your work. Hard truth to, to swallow for some. How do you find satisfaction? When you find purpose for your profession. When you find a kingdom expression for your profession. Amen? The goal for you this year, or for me, you know, even is to discover purpose for my profession. Next slide. I believe we ought to find satisfaction in obedience over popular opinion over being popular. We all know this, that what is culturally acceptable might not always be biblical. What is the social norm 
might not always be kingdom. Just because it's normal, it does not make it right. Just because everybody is doing it doesn't make it okay. You and I are called to live to a higher standard. Okay? I'm making sense. Find satisfaction in obedience over popular opinion. We often refer to Christians who pursue obedience in all areas and who are immune to popular opinion as radical Christians. Here's the truth. We often call radical what Jesus expects of every Christian. That makes sense. I'll move on to the next slide. We ought to find satisfaction in reconciliation over retaliation. In reconciliation over retaliation. Social media has made it really easy for us to retaliate. When you feel negative about a certain person or circumstance, I can then retaliate with a push of a button. I can then retaliate, okay, almost anonymously. Or if someone posts an article and I disagree with certain premises or certain opinions in the article, I can then fight back. I can then retaliate. The Bible admonishes Christians to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. How many of you know that Jesus is not referring to a literal cross? He's not. He's referring to the way of the cross. And we all know that the way of the cross is this, one of forgiveness, is one of unconditional love, is one of non-vengeance, non-retaliation. It's one who chooses to love in spite of offense. It's one that chooses to love even when it's inconvenient. It's so easy for us to retaliate as a society today. And it's almost applauded. You have an opinion. There's a difference between voicing an opinion and being antagonistic. It's a hard intent. You know yourself. Right? Reconciliation over retaliation. The goal for me this year is to not retaliate when I'm offended. The Bible promises this, that we'll all be offended. Okay? It is not possible for you to not be offended in life. Why? A, you are probably an offendable person. B, people do offensive things all the time. <laughs> right? How to be not offended? Right? Live in the bubble. No. So it's not, it's, it's not about whether or I want to be unoffendable. No. That's an unattainable goal. But what you have control of today is whether you choose to respond, react, retaliate to that offense. We ought to find satisfaction in reconciliation rather than <clears throat> fighting back. It's temporal. It's fleeting. And it's so not kingdom. Am I making sense? Fourth point. We ought to find satisfaction in freedom over empathy. Let me say this again. We ought to find satisfaction in freedom over empathy. Freedom over empathy. Why? Huh? Freedom. Come on, ladies and gentlemen, we don't have time. Let's, let's move on for certain spelling errors. Okay. Let's just skip to the next verse before people get through. Galatians 5. I spelled it correctly this time. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom over empathy. How many of you know that if you were to get injured or you know, have a certain traumatic incident happen to you, you go to the hospital, right? They put in painkillers in your body. 
you stop feeling that pain. Correct? And you're numb to the pain, you don't feel it anymore. How many of you know that that is not healing? Right? It's mitigating the pain. But there is something causing the pain that needs to be addressed as well. A lot of us, okay, just wants to be comforted for the pain they're experiencing, but not, are not willing to go through the work, the processes to get to freedom. Empathy does that. Empathy mitigates the pain. It addresses the pain. It, it says, it doesn't address the pain. It mitigates the pain. It says, hey, you know, I, I, I understand your pain. I feel you. You know, I know that this is tough. Okay, and a lot of us, we, we get very comfortable. We're like, oh my gosh, people know me. I feel good. And then it just stops there. But if you know that you're feeling that pain for a reason, and if you don't get the reason sorted out, you will continually feel that pain for the rest of your lives. I'm making sense. And the dysfunctional thing that happens often in churches really is that people get addicted to painkillers. People get addicted to empathy. Oh, keep feeding me. Keep sayonging me. Keep telling me it's always going to be okay. But do nothing to pursue freedom in their lives. But the Bible says this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's for freedom. That making sense. People who think that way are what I, 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 I believe you know, they have this thing called a victimized mentality. And here's what victimized mentality often looks like. Victims are usually are people you can't depend on because they deny responsibility for their actions. They are quick to blame other people in situations for anything that does not work in their lives. Victims don't have resilience, which is the ability to quickly bounce back after being knocked down. Victims generally are passive people. Victims are usually angry at the people or events they think have done them wrong. And underneath the feeling of anger is almost always the feeling of powerlessness. Can I say this to you this morning? That God does not just desire for you to be comforted. He desires for you to be free. Making sense. The last point I'd like to bring up is this. You ought to find satisfaction in the presence of God over indulgences. Presence of God over indulgences. The heretical teaching that has infiltrated some churches is that you are not to have fun as Christians or any enjoyment or any delight in the things of the earth. It's not true. The truth is, God created things for enjoyment. It says this in James that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Okay? Let me just bring up three things that God has given to you and me okay, for our enjoyment. He has given us the gift of food. Can we agree on that? Enjoy food. He's given us the gift of wine. Can we agree on that? Okay, not too loud. <laughs> Responsible, okay? If you, if you struggle with that, you know, read the Bible. Okay, he has given us the gift of sex. I can say that now. He's given us the gift of sex. Can we agree on that? Yes? But how many of you know that a gift if left unchecked or ungoverned, can be perverted and turned into something destructive. Yes? Sex is a good thing. God created it for procreation and for our enjoyment. Biblical. But if it's left unchecked, if that desire isn't governed, it can turn into something really destructive. Likewise is the gifts of God. Am I making sense? 
here's our tendency. We have a tendency to turn good gifts into our God. And this is what the Bible calls idolatry or covetousness. The word cover, covered in the Bible is the same word used to describe desire. And so this is what coveting means. Coveting means desiring something too much. And too much is measured by how that desire compares to our desire for God. And when that desire causes you to be less dependent and to be led away from God, then that desire becomes an idol. It's not wrong to enjoy stuff. But do not confuse the supply for the source. I'd like to answer a question in closing. When does enjoyment turn to covetousness? Enjoyment becomes idolatrous when it is forbidden by God. Enjoyment becomes idolatrous when it is disproportionate to the worth of what is desired. Great desire for non-great things is a sign that we're beginning to make those things our idol. Enjoyment becomes idolatrous when it is not permeated with gratitude. Enjoyment becomes idolatrous when it does not see in God's gift that God himself is to be desired more than the gift. If the gift does not awaken a sense that God the giver is better than the gift, it is becoming an idol. The presence of God over indulgences. We all enjoy things in life. Cup of wine, we sleep at night. Nice music, you know, movies. Here's the problem. The problem is when we find in those things the things that we ought to find in God. We find peace, joy, solace, happiness, satisfaction in earthly things that are temporal. When God intends for you and me to find satisfaction in Him, not because He is egoistic, not because He is narcissistic, but because He alone is able to consistently, continually, everlasting, eternally meet your need. It's not an egoistic plea. It's a plea of mercy. Hey, these things will cause you to thirst again, but drink from me and you will never, ever thirst again. It's only then when we realize that truth that we can say, and echo the words of David, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Can we stand? Amen. How many of you all were helped by that? Yeah? Okay, good. Awesome. Well, you know, I, I covered a bunch of, of stuff and talked a lot. Um, it might have stirred up some stuff in you, you know. And um, I, I want us to take a moment. Let's not just rush through this, but take a moment. Just close your eyes in this place and just want to reflect and, and ponder on the uh, not just the things I said, but on the Word of God, you know, the, the scriptures that were, were brought up. You know, this is the very, this is the living Word of God. You know, just begin to ponder on these things. You know, maybe you have found satisfaction in, in other things, or maybe you, you're struggling with getting free from your need of inferior things. Just begin to ponder on that for a moment. Just begin to reflect.
Every eye closed, every head bowed. Just take a moment and ponder. Let's not be distracted. Let's, let's focus in. Let's lean in today. Let's ponder. Is my soul satisfied in you, God? Or have I been searching for satisfaction, for love in all the wrong places? Maybe you find it in your success in your career. Maybe you find it in retaliation. Maybe you find it and the constant need for empathy. Maybe you find it in certain indulgences and in certain habits. That well will cause you to thirst again. But He promises a drink so refreshing, so eternal, so life-giving that you will never long for another 